Hey, Matt. Hey, Mel. <laughs> what year is it? <sighs> <laughs> Did I see that right? Is it 2022? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what really is time anyway? <laughs> time um, is an illusion. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's apparently been two years since we released an episode of The Bog House. Yeah, without warning, we kind of went off the air for a while. But the fun thing about having a podcast, which is literally a hobby, it's not a job, we don't do ads, we don't do sponsorship, we're not reliant upon audience engagement to keep the electricity on, is that we have the ability to do that when we hit a stretch of time where we just don't really feel like podcasting. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of hard to, you know, focus on happy, fun things when, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic that uh, was and is still going on is raging. Yeah, when everything is seriously falling apart and you're terrified that your life is going to change forever, um, it can be hard to settle down and have happy, fun conversation time in front of a microphone once a week. Yeah, I might have been distracted by the protests that were bringing police violence and a National Guard presence to our neighborhood. I mean, the the pillars of smoke coming from Center City were a little off-putting. Yes, uh, and also there was a shit show of an election that resulted (laughs) in a bunch of MAGA fuckwads coming to Philadelphia that I had to go counter-protest, which uh, was an experience. I mean, Um, I'm going to say that was actually kind of kind of fun i mean it was fun but it was the kind of fun you have when you feel like the country could also descend into civil war and you may as well get out one last dance party where you're flipping the bird at a bunch of morons i mean i'm pretty sure they had djs at thunderdome it was something (laughs) like that right and then there was an insurrection that we all watched on the internet and then went on to do uh zoom meetings later that day yeah (laughs) Oh, and then the the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia burst its banks and turned 676 into a freaking canal, which made me wonder what global warming is going to do to the East Coast of America. I mean, I actually kind of enjoyed that. Number one, my distance (laughs) from all that was, you know, helpful. But also uh, the fact that that was kind of meant to be a canal. Uh, It was really kind of beautiful. Kind of beautiful. (laughs) The, the, The footage of that. Maybe not something you go diving into. Yeah, the water was pretty disgusting from what I heard. But it's okay. We didn't see it in person because we were locked down in our house trying to avoid getting COVID-19. So... Right. And as part of that whole lockdown thing, we all had to operate out of our, you know, I won't even call them offices. We had to, like, turn them into little broadcast stations just to do our jobs. Right. Every person in America who was able to became a television producer slash presenter in their own home with Zoom. Oh, hi, Inky. Yeah, Inky uh, got way more talkative, too, now that we're home all the time. Yeah, we'll explain some more of that um, Uh in a little bit. Uh, But here's the funny thing. The world was falling apart, but Matt and I, you and I, were actually in an incredibly good position. I mean... uh, I mean, it was bittersweet, but we made some pretty good lemonade. Yeah, well, look, I'm going to say this, first of all. We have a house over our heads. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. if this had all happened, like, the second we bought this building, when we had $7 in the bank? How much more terrifying that would have been. And we had to start making, you know, um, 
mortgage payments on mm. on, on a commercial loan construction loan or if we hadn't you know found all this archaeology and we were on track with the original launch date of the theater of i don't know february 2020 right or 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 if we like didn't have a good marriage and we were stuck in the house with each other hating each other and threatening to get a divorce which has happened to a ton of couples over the pandemic because it's so hard life has been hard life has been a challenge in different degrees for everybody and I think that for all of the unusual activity, for all of the uncertainty, we got off pretty good. We really kind of did. And in fact, I feel like such a piece of shit saying this, but both your and my careers kind of blossomed during the pandemic. And I'm not talking about podcasting careers because, as we said earlier, we didn't do that. But our regular day jobs... Um, did not suffer during the last two years, which is some good news. I mean, some nuance to that. My my day job changed. Yes. We're going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. And uh, my day job... Uh, it changed in a good way. Yes. There was... Right. Again, uh, we made some good lemonade. Yes, we did. Out of a very lemony uh, time. A couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why are we here now? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, oops, I did a viral tweet. Um, <laughs> so Fuck! <laughs> Oh, fuck. I did a viral tweet. Someone wrote into the show to tell us to swear less. And I'm assuming that by us, he means me because I've been going through our old episode transcripts. And when I do a search on the word fuck, it's like 90% me who says fuck on the air. So I posted this anonymous stranger's comment to Twitter His his sagely advice for how we can grow our audience. For how we can become more popular, his suggestion was to stop swearing. I posted this advice to Twitter, and it actually worked. 4,000 extra people started (laughs) following me um, out of spite, to spite this dude who's telling me to stop saying fuck on the air. I I sort of felt a lot of pressure from that. I'm like, oh, shit, I guess I better get back to the podcast that everyone's following me for now. (laughs) And... You know, even just a couple of weeks before that, we uh, sat down with uh, one Scott Stevenson from the Museum of the American Revolution. Our favorite museum. <laughs> I'm going to write you a jingle. <laughs> I'm going to write the museum a jingle that's just like, the Museum of the American Revolution, our favorite museum. Yeah, something like that. I'm a and composer. It was, it was great to just kind of get back to talking about what we had gotten up to as well as touch on what we've been doing over the last two years, but more on that later. Yeah, you can go and listen to our interview with Scott if you do a search for MREV360, which is their series of video podcasts slash interviews that they've been doing. MREV, for those who don't know, is American Revolution. <laughs> abbreviated. <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, you probably already watched it. Uh, hopefully you've already seen it because you, you're following us on social media. Um, also, uh, another fun thing. Big news. That's right. Big news. We are writing an article for an upcoming volume of Ceramics in America. Oh, my God. <laughs> People are going to lose their minds. Okay. Uh, but we'll talk more about that uh, later. We have a whole episode planned to talk about that in the future. We have so much news. I mean, another important thing about this is when we first recorded the podcast, 
we had a backlog of things that we had done mm-hmm. and we were running out of backlog right we turned into a travel log <laughs> for a bit and you know we were doing interviews and that's all good and great but in the last two years we have amassed yet another backlog which is really exciting yes that gives us uh, enough buffer <laughs> to record a couple episodes and give us some breathing time as we continue to go through we've got some really exciting things to tell you Take, Take a, a seat. seat. You're in the bog house. The fucking bog house. Fuck. <laughs> Matt, why don't you fill everyone in on what's been going on in your non-podcast life? Yeah, you know, just in case 2020 didn't have enough dramatic change going on, early on that year, we, you know, had a lot of anxiety around a financial situation. Before the pandemic rolled through and kind of threw everything off, having an Airbnb on the second floor was a clever way to supplement our regular income and keep us above water with the weird commercial loan we took on for this this building that we live in. But with a deadly viral pandemic going on, our bookings evaporated overnight. Yeah. We did get some bookings. They started to trickle in, but they were (laughs) not great. It was mostly locals who wanted a place outside of the home they were living in with their parents to do drugs. Which, you know, like, respect. I get it. (laughs) But they also would leave the apartment stinking of drugs. (laughs) I mean, people would come here to blow off steam in lots of different ways. Um, although my my personal favorite was it was a day it was like fifty degrees out. It was pretty chilly, and I looked down and there's a guy just in his boxers uh, outside, completely passed out. I wasn't sure if he was dead on the porch of uh, of the Airbnb. Yeah, and it's the thing I will say, people were pretty generous with the liquor they left behind. <laughs> true people would check out we'd go downstairs and there would just be bottles of liquor and you know it's like this calculation you have to make there's a pandemic going on i don't know if i trust this liquid oh wait it's over 50 proof like we're good (laughs) (laughs) we could use it to sanitize stuff and we can drink it to keep ourselves you know to deaden our terror (laughs) but this reduced volume was not helping pay the bills like it used to And the initial shutdown and insecurity of the pandemic hit pretty hard at the e-commerce company where I worked, um, where a lot of hard decisions were being made in order to keep the company afloat at a critical time. So mix in the 100% shutdown of all things performing arts and the increasingly unstable situation with the American government in general, (laughs) and we started considering our options. We really did. Do you want to talk a bit about trying to get Australian visas? Yeah, like, oh my gosh. This is how bad it got. It was about a month before the election, and I was pretty convinced, I think reasonably so, (laughs) that there was a chance that America was about to devolve into civil war. On one hand, it seems... It seems impossible. It seems so impossible. But also, I've grown up in an immigrant family that have fled from countries where civil war and political rest have happened. So in my background, that's extremely possible. And I'm watching what's going on with the upcoming election and thinking, holy shit, are we going to have to flee the country? Like, are we in that 
that moment before the shit hits the fan mm. where you might need to get out now, otherwise it's going to be too late and it's going to hurt. It's going to be really bad. Yeah. One anecdote, there's a, a fellow I follow on Twitter uh, who runs the site Pinboard who would talk about when when things went bad in sort of the Eastern Bloc, people would make a run on ATMs. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody was like, wow, that's weird. I would go for like, you know, bread and milk. Uh, <laughs> and then like when everything went bad in, in Philly, Philly for weeks, weeks, you just had explosions throughout the night because people were blowing up ATMs. With M80s, right? Is that what you call them? Yeah, yeah. Quarter sticks of dynamite, M80s. Right, and getting the money out of them. And it was like this (laughs) apocalyptic like soundtrack to what was going on this thought that society is is fraying to the point where people are literally blowing up atms yeah the buzz of four helicopters overhead Mm -hmm. and just explosions (laughs) in the distance i mean it was all night long it was scary so i uh, went online and started looking into what it would take if in a worst case scenario for us to get to australia um and i i actually, you know, paid for visas, a visa for Matt, a long-term visa, so that if we had to flee, theoretically, if it were even possible to get to Australia in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) Matt would at least be able to stay there for a year before we had to really look into red tape. It was was serious business. And um, I also, you know, for the first time in 14 years, uh, I started looking at other employment options because mm. I could see that uh, if, if we didn't just push eject and, and rip everything out and run uh, with whatever we could to another country, um, that mortgage was looking harder and harder to pay with what was going on. And actually, very quickly, I fortunately found a position with a German company in the same industry. It was 100% remote, but I mean, so is nearly everything in tech now by necessity. That new job took a lot of the anxiety off my shoulders when it came to worrying about paying the bills. And if I didn't totally bungle it, it's going to help us move past the sort of treading water reality we were in as far as the theater was concerned. You know, I don't know that I had any particular idea of what my last day at my previous job would have looked like. It wasn't something I sat around thinking about, but wrapping up a 14-year career by making a couple emotional phone calls to people I hadn't seen in person for over half a year was kind of the professional equivalent of a wet fart. (laughs) It was not the way to go out. It sucked. I put it out there that I'd be up for meeting at the Cherry Street Pier on my last Friday, and two people showed up. Not that I hold it against anyone. There were no vaccines. Like, it was crazy town right Um, i I walked through a dead city and was so pleased that two people showed up (laughs) my god yeah this is it it was such a weird time i mean at the start of the pandemic for me i really considered very seriously that my career was dead in the water for the immediate future you know i had just come off a real high uh right before the pandemic hit i did a residency at gonzaga university in washington state Uh, Then I did a concert in New York City, and then I went to a a conference in Rochester, New York, a choral conference. Um, If you remember the start of the pandemic, (laughs) in Washington State, the pandemic was the first place that it kind of exploded. And then New York City was like a huge hotspot, the biggest hotspot in America. And those were the places that I was um, before we really understood what was going on. Right. And you're like half Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) 
God, man, you can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Well, <laughs> more than that, all the things I was going to were singing related. Right. And singing is like a super spreader event, right? So I come home from Rochester, New York. I immediately get sick with something. I was sick for like three weeks. I don't know if it was COVID because there wasn't a way to test um, yeah. easily at that point. By the time they had drive-in tests, it was It was long three past. weeks later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did a test eventually, but it, it had been three weeks since symptoms had shown up and it came up negative and everyone was like, I don't know if it was COVID or not. We actually have no way of telling anymore. So that was fucking terrifying. And then on top of that, I was like, well, no one can sing anymore. And what I do is write music for singers, so I guess my career is toast. But I don't really still understand how this happened, but um, the commission offers kept rolling in, even through the worst period of the pandemic. People kept calling me and asking me to write music. It was like people still needed to create art and to know that art was being created. Uh, I get kind of emotional thinking about it because I, w- I was so freaked out. The people who were calling me and offering me money to write stuff were giving me really good projects. The flip side of that was that uh, because I had gone through all of these scares and I was so f- afraid for my career, I said yes to every single <laughs> offer that came in. They were all amazing offers. And I totally overloaded myself. I wrote more music in 2020 than I have written in my entire freaking life, like in any year span in my life. It was bananas. It was unsustainable, actually. (laughs) But it led to some really cool projects that happened that year. The Museum of the American Revolution, my favorite museum, (laughs) uh, commissioned me to write a choral work for them called Remember the Ladies that was premiered in March of 2021. Virtually. Virtually, I should say, yes. (laughs) Opera Philadelphia recorded a song from the Gonzales Cantata. There was a film version of the Gonzales Cantata done uh, by a company down in Baltimore. I wrote a 19-minute work about women's suffrage called Amendment. Votchus 8, one of the most amazing choirs in the UK commissioned a work from me called Halcyon Days which is, you know, going gangbusters and being sung everywhere. The Mendelssohn Chorus commissioned me. It was just nuts. There were so many different things happening. I'm a little freaked out looking back at how much music I wrote over 2020 and into 2021. And yeah, right now, it's still going. This sort of rush. It's still going. Right now, I'm working on sound design for the first live theater show I've been involved with in a year or so. Wait, no. What is time? Yeah, I don't know what time <laughs> is. Okay, I've <laughs> I've done two shows with my good friend Ozzy Jones, who I've mentioned on this podcast before. Passover was a show I did with him with Theater Exile. It was an outdoor show in 2021 during that brief window of time when we thought that the vaccines had solved everything and everything was going to go back to normal before Delta hit. And it was also outdoors and beautiful. Yeah, and the summertime and great. And right now I'm doing another show with Ozzy and Theater Exile called The Motherfucker with the Hat. (laughs) Which I'm delighted to be doing because it means I get to say motherfucker on the regular in professional contexts. Uh, It's a good time. So, anyway, the long and the short of it is I am super duper burned out. Um, (laughs) Fact. Fact. I I am burned out to fuck. (laughs) 
I actually would rather wash shirts for like an entire year, but I'm not going to complain about it because like, how can you complain about being asked to write amazing music for amazing people? And I hired an assistant. I hired my first like proper composer assistant, my friend Dina. I mean, that was like a totally crazy coincidence. Yeah, okay. I've been working out of this room where we record the podcast. This room that I set up to be the room I go to when I don't work is now my office. Yeah. And when the weather got nice, I started working with the back porch and... Our back porch is still just kind of a rubber roof. That's it. A rubber roof with uh, a table on it. It's not quite finished because we didn't have money when we moved in to finish it. Uh, Yeah. And it was fine. It was fine. But as I was spending more time out there, we decided let's literally deck it out. We planned it out on like graph paper, filled out the materials, and Melissa placed an order online with the Home Depot. I was frankly raking in the money from commissions. (laughs) So, I, so it was like, I, we can afford to, to do the deck now. We can afford to, to finish out that deck. A little backstory, first of all. In 2009, I did this piece called the Gonzales Cantata in the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. And I hired a good friend of mine at that time, Dina, who was a stage manager, to stage manage that show. Tangent. Stage managers are worth their goddamn weight in gold in theater. Theater could not run without a stage manager and a stage manager makes or breaks a production if you have a good stage manager you can surmount any difficulties and dina was that stage manager she did an amazing job with the gonzalez cantata but shortly after she got burned in the art scene and decided that she would get a non a real job no shut up (laughs) oh my god no jail jail for matt yeah Um, yeah So she actually ended up working at the Home Depot for over a decade. Uh, And I mourned. I mourned when I heard that she had gone to work at a Home Depot in South Jersey because I was like, oh, man, the Philadelphia theater scene has lost one of the best stage managers I know. That sucks. Anyway, so cut back to 2021. Some of what we had ordered was special order and it needed to get delivered. And it, it you know, with supply chain issues, it, it took a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Who knows what is time? What is time? Before we got notification on a Friday that, uh, hey, it's there to be picked up. So we arranged for a big rental truck because these are 16 foot long planks of composite wood. And when we got to the Home Depot the very next day, the service desk told us that the order had been canceled. They fucked up. They they just said that they had canceled the order and marked it as returned. And I said, very calmly, <laughs> uh, that's incorrect because it arrived yesterday and I seriously don't think that you've returned it in less than 24 hours. So I think maybe you should call a manager and we'll get this sorted out. Uh, I was very, I was actually very calm because... The pandemic has made a lot of retail customers mm-hmm. lose their goddamn minds, and I am very cognizant of. Um, I've had, put it this way, I've had enough therapy to understand that people do that when they feel like they've lost control in their lives and they're trying to regain control by screaming at some poor retail worker. Oh yeah, and it's nowhere near the end of the world. The end I of mean, the world is outside the building. Yeah, but seriously. <laughs> but <laughs> it's it, yeah, it was. We're kind of at the stage where uh, everything comes with a, a little bit of extra friction. 
Yeah. And so it was like, all right, it's no problem. I'm sure we can figure it out. It's such a big order that... I bet it's down in the lumber aisle, like just sitting on a cot in the lumber aisle. I'm going to go down there and check. If you want to call a manager to talk this through, that would be great. And as I'm walking down to the lumber aisle, I hear behind me, Melissa? And I turn around and like a deus ex machina angel from above... (laughs) It's Dina, who unbeknownst to me during the pandemic has been transferred from her Home Depot in South Jersey to my local Home Depot, which I very rarely go to anymore because fuck those MAGA fuckwords. And, you know, I turn around and we're like delighted. We're we're refraining from hugging each other because it's a pandemic and we're both wearing masks (laughs) and it's weird. But at some point I say to her, you know, how are you? What is what's been going on? She's like, I'm miserable. I need to get back into the arts. She's like, how are you? What's going on? And I'm like, I'm miserable. I really need to hire an assistant because my life is out of control. And it's like tick, 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 tick. <laughs> oh my god the solution to all our problems is here so i have hired dina she quit her job at the home depot i poached her from the orange box store and she is now working for me as my assistant who helps me with all of my administrative stuff and helps me clean shirts and uh it's a- amazing it's worked out so great we're such adults now oh my god Ugh. i have an employee well it's you know i have a contract assistant <laughs> You have complicated taxes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other really fortunate thing that happened in all of this, now we we still had our house in Downingtown, our first house where we did renovation and our first dive into like working with an old building or what we thought was old. And there were tenants there who, during the pandemic, no complaints. They were paying rent. We weren't pressuring or anything. Right. We're like, I mean, they, they could have not paid rent. Right. They're, they're never going to hear this, but they could have not paid rent. And I, I, I would whatever. have let it slide. It's I, fine. Yeah. To our surprise and delight, they gave notice and moved out on Halloween. It was delight because we had been thinking for a long time that maybe we should sell that property. And I, I don't really enjoy being a landlord. We were literally absentee landlords. And like, but here's the thing, like, I knew we wanted to sell the place, but because we've been tenants before Mm -hmm. and we've been in situations where landlords have said, well, I'm selling the house. You're being evicted because I have to sell the house now. I didn't push and didn't make any moves to sell the house because I was waiting for them to move out on their own steam. Right. Nobody except you and I knew that we wanted to sell the house. Right. We didn't tell anyone. We didn't push anything. It was great. So then in October of 2020, when they were like, hey, we're moving out. I was like, oh, okay, so this is the time to get rid of the Downingtown house and get an injection of money, which we can then use eventually. To build the theater. Oh, my God. So we did. We sold our Downingtown house. I mean, we did a ton of work on it. Oh, yeah. um, Which was actually kind of amazing. It has looked better than it has looked in over 100 years. Because we've learned so much about renovation and building since the first time we did it. And I even found a photo on the Downingtown Historical Society's website of our porch from like 1940, but it gave us an idea of what the original railing looked like. This is who we are now. We're like yeah. his- history nerds who, let's go like restore- Let's make it Edwardian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> We, we finally stripped the paint off of the doors upstairs and found amazing door hardware on there. I know. <laughs> Again, this is who we yeah, are now. The I... kind of people who get real fucking excited about <laughs> hinges. 
like, oh, wow, did you see the detail on these metal hinges? They don't make hinges like that anymore. Oh, I'm so broken. What the fuck um, is wrong with me? But, I mean, we listed the house on January 1st. Mm-hmm. We had 30 offers on the first weekend. Yeah, we didn't mean to do this. Uh, it but was that, we, that whole rush to the suburbs happened. Right. That time where everyone had been stuck in their homes for nine, eight, nine or ten months. And people were starting to upgrade their homes and move to the suburbs and try to find a home with a yard in a nice school district, which is exactly what that house was. Like, it was a tiny little place. But for a starter home for a family, it's perfect. Oh, it's it's a great starter home. I hope they're enjoying it because... Um, you know, we we were fortunate again enough to have that choice where uh, we told every single investor to fuck themselves. Yeah, there were a bunch of investors, <laughs> and we were like, you know, I don't care how much you offer me, actually, because you know we're in a comfortable enough place that we're not desperate. The margin's for money. not important, right, right? We're not like gagging for the highest possible price. I actually wanted to be as I mean, you know, I sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but I like I wanted it to be as ethical a sale as possible. I wanted to help our neighbors in Downingtown, mm-hmm. whom we love, have a good neighbor move in to their neighborhood. So after getting seven letters, like it was Right, that was the weirdest part. It was like San Francisco stuff. I've never heard of a sale in the Philadelphia area where people write those like heartbreaking letters where they're like, hello, our names are Tommy and Jordan and we have a five-year-old kid and we love your house so much and here's all the reasons that we're so desperate to move into your house. I'm like, oh my God, this is wild. I've never... It doesn't usually work like that in this area. So a month and a half after we listed the house... It was sold, and we had money in hand. So, upshot, we have a surprising amount of money in the bank, and we're actually ready to move forward with the next stage of construction of the theater. More on that in a future episode. (laughs) Guys, it's happening. (laughs) But the big thing that we have to report on first, The big, big thing that we have to talk about first is, like, the reason this podcast exists, right? Actually, right before the pandemic, we cleared what we have been referring to since nearly the beginning of this podcast as our second privy. So, if you cast your mind back to episode five, we left off with the haunting revelation (laughs) that this privy on our property remained to be dug. This is when Rob and Michelle visited us and asked us about it. Uh, And then a few episodes later in our question and answer episode, our friend Mark specifically asked us, like, what was the deal with that cliffhanger that you then never addressed (laughs) in episode five? And we declined to answer, saying you'll have to wait and see. Well... Well you waited, and it's time to see. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> okay, <laughs> Thanks um, for sticking around. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> patience, patience. Um, you know, <laughs> we're Nine Inch Nails fans, and Nine Inch Nails fans are very used to this dragging out of releases. So <laughs> Multi-year gaps between albums. Between albums, right. So, um, a little aside, actually, I mentioned that we've been referring to this as our second privy. But we are now referring to this as the 103 Callow Hill South Privy, or 103 South. And our first privy is now called the 103 Callow Hill North Privy, or just 103 North. Right. And the third privy that we dug 
which we had been referring to as the Privy Next Door, uh, which we dug with Privy Diggers Michael and Tom and Farmer Kevin, is now going to be known in the nomenclature as the 406 Front Privy. You see, we've had to change our nomenclature for reasons that would become plain in a future episode. Uh, Suffice it to say, we didn't want to fall into the trap of colonial settlers who named all their sons John, Jonathan, John (laughs) Jr., John III, and, of course... Uh, the ever-popular New South John. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so let's give just, first of all, like a really broad timeline of this privy, the 103 South privy, because we're going to be spending some time on this privy in the next couple of episodes. Where does it start? Back in the middle of 2016, the foundation pit for the floor that we're actually on right now uh, (laughs) revealed the presence of both the 103 North and 103 South privies. We fully excavated 103 North, but mostly left 103 South untouched. During construction, as you may recall, a concrete footer for our steelwork was poured, and the footing occluded some, but as it turns out, not all, of the top of the privy. So then jump through to November of 2017, we moved into the apartment that we're in right now upstairs. And uh, very shortly after we moved in, we started nosing around the privy. Nosing around the privy with a gas-powered concrete <laughs> saw. You could call that nosing around um, for a couple of reasons. Um, we, we borrowed this massive concrete saw from Larry, who you know we interviewed in an earlier episode. And uh, as, as happens when you use gas-powered equipment indoors, we set off our carbon monoxide detector. We got really, really good photos. There are these <laughs> badass photos of me in like full like construction gear holding this huge concrete saw. It's basically like, for those of you who don't know what a concrete saw is, it's like a massive circular saw on steroids that runs on gasoline and uh, can cut through a whole slab of concrete all at once and send sparks flying up into the air. Like, you have to wear all the PPE to, like, protect your eyes and protect your face from everything that's going on. We had, like, just opened the Airbnb, but thankfully... Uh, nobody was there when we were doing this. Because <laughs> all the carbon monoxide detectors oh went off. And then we were like, oh my God, it really stinks. <laughs> yeah, not, oh, not our brightest oh, moment. Oh shit. It not was... our brightest moment. We we knew better. <laughs> well, yeah. But it was exciting. <laughs> we had like these fans set up in the in the doorway to like blow all of the fumes <laughs> out. And I just remember like people were walking by on the sidewalk and we're like, hey, how's it going? As we sit here, we are in the doorway of the theater with these massive fans blowing out the smell of gasoline fumes. I was like, oh my God, we're going to get arrested. We're such idiots. (laughs) Um, So the next day. Yeah, we switched to sledgehammering. And by Um, we, I mean mostly Matt because my upper body strength is nothing to speak of. (laughs) Uh, and, you know, their, their techniques, once we got it started, it, it's actually not too bad to hammer through. We lifted the slab over the privy and 
Not the footing, but there's like a concrete slab that um, sort of multiple slabs. The slab that was poured in ni- in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, this janky slab on grade that they had to cut through to pour the footing in the first place. We basically cut some more of that slab away to see if there was an angle that we could get into the privy from that wasn't coming right down the top. And the first thing that we found when we peeled away these chunks of concrete slab were more pieces of the huge punch bowl that made Rob Hunter go, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) It was really exciting. There were like these pictures of me in my, you know, concrete soul PPE just holding this huge shirt of red wag and grinning from ear to ear. We caught the bug all over again. Yeah, so the, the two of us started to dig down into the privy from the angle that we were able to access it from. And pretty quickly, like pretty early on, as we were getting this dirt out, we started finding artifacts that were exciting and interesting and making us sure that we were doing the right thing. One of the examples was a fragment of a soft-paced porcelain figurine. So it's like half of the torso of a man wearing a frock coat. It's missing his head, it's missing his legs, but you can tell what it is. And, you know, I was so captivated by this little guy because uh, I called him Mozart because he's wearing 18th century clothing. Right, it was contemporary from the manufacturer. Right, this is like the weird thing that gets me, right? Because... um, in England, Beau Porcelain was a maker of these porcelain figurines that were very popular. We kind of think of it now as these kitschy things that, you know, little old ladies keep in display cabinets in their houses. And uh, oftentimes, the ones that are collected even today are wearing 18th century costumes because that's when these figurines were popularized. It's, it's a bit like opera. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, kind of. <laughs> I'll accept that burn. That's a burn that opera deserves. Um, but, you know, it's funny because actually, if you think about it, this is literally what people were wearing at the time. Right. So it's kind right. of like if you made a figurine today that was wearing, what the hell are kids wearing now? Jankers again? <laughs> if it was made today in the same style it would be made using modern clothing right but we found it in modern day wearing 18th century clothing right but right. it was it's just it was a lot of, to think about yeah it's just like this big mind fuck and it, it's wearing the same kind of outfit that you would see in like the film of amadeus or something so yeah my little mozart guy what else did we find in that initial <laughs> we, we found and i forget if we talked about this but we found a little mug uh, which at first was kind of charming um, and is still charming in its own way. Uh, it says, a present for my boy. Right. It has a transfer print on it. And, you know, immediately we were really excited because anything with writing on it is very exciting. Uh, you can Google what the words are and see other examples. I went to Google and I Googled small child's mug, a present for my boy. And what was hilarious was I kept finding all of these images of very similar mugs that said, a present for my good boy, or a present for my lovely son, or... a present for my special boy. It's like all of these adjectives that other people were using to describe their boy. (laughs) There wasn't a single other one that just said, a present for my boy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like... 
I will acknowledge that you are my boy, and that's about, you know, you should probably just be grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this poor kid. So, throughout the second half of 2019, at this time, our podcast is in full swing, we were thinking really seriously about how do we finish this dig? We realized that we were going to need help because it's probably going to be a lot deeper than what we call the 103 North Privy now. Right, we had probed it, so we knew it went down at least 11 or 12 feet and probably even further. Yeah, and with the weird occluded entrance, it was a little bit sketchy. Mm-hmm. At one point, Debbie Miller, the archaeologist who we interviewed uh, in an earlier episode, came over and she took one look at the hole that we had dug so far and, and turned to us and said, promise me you will never go down there ever again. <laughs> I mean, it, it looked pretty sketch. It looked weird, but some sort of redneck engineering helped us determine that it was actually... All right. Well, Tom and Michael came over and we invited them over and we said, look, check out this situation. Do you think this is diggable or not? Like, what do you what do you reckon? And both of them were like, oh, yeah, that's easily diggable. Of course, Tom and Michael (laughs) are adventurous risk takers. (laughs) But, you know, we we basically, you know, asked them, would they be willing to assist us because they have so much more experience with this kind of dig than we do and we'd feel so much safer if they were around to spot us and check us and help do the dig as safely and as quickly as possible so that you know safety is a a primary concern plus i mean they're uh, just so much stronger than me if something happened they could just pull you right out (laughs) having more people on a dig means more people to help out in an emergency if that that, you know comes through yeah (laughs) We mentioned earlier the privy next door, which we're now calling the 406 front privy. One of the reasons that we delayed digging out the 103 south privy for so long is that we were still processing the finds from that privy. If you remember us talking about that, that privy was enormous. And the amount of stuff that came out of that privy was overwhelming. And in my head, I was like, I need to process all of these finds before I start on a new privy because I honestly don't know when my brain is going to reach capacity uh, and I won't be able to remember or differentiate, you know, in my head what stuff comes from what privy. I'll get them all mixed up. When Melissa does this, this is all in her head. Right? We're, we're not recording some kind of database and, and putting things. We do sort things by, by color and by material. We have a label for each privy now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we thought this was a lot. Uh, spoiler alert. It, it was just the beginning. <laughs> we didn't want to overload just what we had to deal with in our brains right. for helping assemble this stuff. It's like doing 500 jigsaw puzzles at the same time and all of the pieces are mixed up together. It's kind of possible, actually, surprisingly possible to keep 500 jigsaw puzzles in your head at once so that when you pick out a piece of puzzle, you can see patterns on it and go, oh, I know exactly which jigsaw that goes to and take it to that jigsaw. But if you start multiplying that... Mm. But <laughs> I, do, I don't know where the limit is. I yeah. just, I'm not really sure. But by November of 2019, we had just about finished processing all of the finds from 406 Front, and the timing started to feel right to get serious about diving in. All right, who wants a list? <laughs> <laughs> November 17th, 2019. Uh, Tom shows up to assess what we've done and starts 
right into it. Like the guy, you can't hold him back from no, a He's amazing. Yeah, he just like jumped in there with a <laughs> shovel and was like, "All right, let's go, let's go dig." <laughs> uh, and sure enough, he confirmed with probes, with shovels, it goes down much deeper and definitely contains artifacts. So the next day, Mike brought in his large sifter. So you know, we had been using these tiny little sifters. Mike has basically an industrial-sized sifter, uh, which can sift a much larger quantity of dirt. And we started to dig properly. Because this privy was occluded by construction that had gone on around the privy over the last century, it was a little bit scary, actually, to get into there. And as we were going down, you know, that we were constantly checking to make sure that things weren't collapsing, that everything was stable. But it it was surprisingly stable. It was a very well-constructed privy. A couple days pass, so by the 24th, Mike comes over and brings this tripod pulley system they have. You can see this if you search YouTube for the Privy Diggers, and they've got a great you know video about this. Because the depth of the Privy had now become enough that we couldn't really easily lift buckets from below to people on the surface. He also brought in this adorable little fire escape ladder. Um, because, again, the way to get in this was kind of strange. You couldn't just dump a ladder down there, like a standard ladder. Right. It's a much smaller entrance than the entire diameter of the privy. So this little ladder is this folding fire escape ladder. You can kind of throw it in the privy and it extends down really quickly. You know, we actually, we did some drills at the beginning when we were using this ladder so that we knew what the process would be if there was some kind of emergency and we needed to get out of the privy as quickly as possible. There were one or two times where the person who was in the privy would get freaked out. Like, I remember this happened to Tom at one point. We'd Mm -hmm. sort of get a bit freaked out, see some dirt move and go... We need to come up. We need to come up right now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like scramble up the ladder. But nothing happened at all that warranted that kind of emergency. We all made it out alive. <laughs> um, not not to get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> uh, the next weekend, we hit the use layer and the artifacts started coming up thick and fast. So far, the two of us alone had dug down about five feet from the ground level. And there were artifacts in this layer, but they were more like fill. And this, you know, remained true for the next couple of feet. But then there was nearly 10 more feet of dirt, brick, ash, and artifacts. And then a week after that, the following weekend, we hit the clay cap. I don't even remember exactly who was down in the privy at this point, but, you know, you're scooping the contents of the privy into a bucket. And then suddenly, instead of the sort of typical soil, which is actually degraded shit and artifacts, there was a layer of just clay, like almost clean clay with no artifacts in it, chunks of clay. And it was sort of a light bulb moment because it was like, is this the bottom of the privy? Have we hit the you know unadulterated clay that's in the soil what is this what is going on right now but it ended up not being that it was a clay layer about six inches deep and when we stripped that clay away and kept probing down it kept going the purview was deeper than that clay layer And I think at this point, we were, what, 16 feet down in the privy. Yeah, it was very bizarre. <laughs> I, I got to say, I took, like, one of my 
best selfies. I'm not a big selfie person. Um, <laughs> but when I finally climbed down there, you got to remember, we're 16 feet below ground level. But in the theater, if you recall, we made 20-foot ceilings. So looking up from where I'm standing... Up to the... All the way up to the ceiling. But through this little tiny hole, it was it was like nothing I've ever experienced before and probably will never experience again. Yeah, it's a little overwhelming. By this point, we had so many artifacts and it was down so deep that I was literally praying for the privy to end like i wanted the privy to end i did not want it to be this unending bottomless pit of artifacts i mean that's nice but i was wholeheartedly by that point going please don't let it go down any further and then tom would probe it and go oh no it goes down further and i'm like no i can't deal this is too much i mean at this point we've technically been digging this thing for two and a half years <laughs> like aside from all the other stuff going on oh my god so it ended up going down beneath the clay cap another three feet, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but those three feet... Oh, my goodness. ...were the most artifact-rich three feet of the entire privy, and we kept the artifacts from that final three feet separate because, you know, it seemed clear that the clay layer was a you know speaking about the stratigraphy the clay cap was a clear barrier so the stuff beneath the clay cap might have had some kind of chronological significance let's keep them separate just in case yeah i like to speculate about that melissa gives me a hard time I, we, we just aren't 100% <laughs> sure that's all anyway <laughs> but finally four days before christmas we hit the bottom of the privy so this is in 2019. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It went down another three feet below that clay cap. Uh, we threw a measuring tape down and recorded 19 and a half feet of depth. And was this, this was six feet wide? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It, it was a lot. It was <sighs> a heck of a dig. But, you know, as the privy diggers mentioned it was a nice dig because it was indoors and that's not a typical dig for privy diggers normally they dig outdoors because we're digging literal outhouses or they're in construction sites but this was kind of nice you know being inside doing a privy dig <laughs> yeah and and having the convenience <laughs> I mean, we've, we've met a lot of folks in the industry now who have talked about how amazing it would be to just have a site in your house yeah and we were Living, living that dream yes <laughs> I, it was a little bit of a nightmare sometimes but i'm not going to say i'm nostalgic about it yet but i will definitely be very nostalgic about that dig in the near future i'm pretty sure who else was helping us out with that dig because it oh. wasn't just what yeah I, I mean we got to give a shout out because it wasn't just the four of us yeah yeah michael and tom invited their then 15 year old son with their son <laughs> Right. It's just Michael's son, Lewis. Uh, he was 15 at the time. Um, <laughs> We're erasing Marita. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, so uh, Lewis came and helped and was actually incredibly helpful. We'll talk about that, discussing some fun stories that happened along the way. Yeah. Uh, and we made some new friends as well. Yes. Uh, Duncan, an actual archaeologist. <laughs> Who, a real one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Le legitimate has background in this. Um, 
Breland Micro Tools. We'll talk about that later. Daniel Turan. Yes, an amazing ceramics artist and one of my favorite people that I have met in this whole adventure. He was um, doing a residency at the Philadelphia Museum of Art talking about ceramics from this period actually and so he came over and helped as well which wonderful was wonderful human being yeah uh lost him recently to texas oh, <laughs> you can't start a sentence with lost him when we've gone through a pandemic i was like wait what <laughs> and i know he's alive and no. i'm still my heart in my three okay <laughs> follow him on instagram or see him in the videos at the museum uh spoilers yeah. um and then uh izzy and seamus uh izzy i know from my last job came over with uh, her partner Seamus and helped us sift uh, and even came over to clean shirts later. Yeah, it was great. So at the end of this whole dig, which finished out at the end of 2019, all of these dirt slash shit caked artifacts were waiting for us in buckets and tubs uh, in, on our first floor for us to clean and process. And we had them, as I mentioned, separated into two sections, the stuff from above the clay cap and the stuff from below the clay cap. We decided not to fill the privy back in right away. Normally what happens with these digs is you dig all the artifacts out and then you just throw everything back into the privy as soon as possible, because often this is happening, as I mentioned, on construction sites or in someone's backyard. But because we have this indoor dig in our own home, we have this incredible luxury mm. where all of the dirt from this privy is lying in a huge pile above ground, along with a separate pile of animal bones and oyster shells and another huge stack of bricks and large rocks that had come out of this privy. And we decided eventually that we were going to re-sift and re-look through all of the stuff in that pile to see if we missed anything, which is a luxury that I hear from archaeologists they wish they had on digs, but generally you don't have the time and the resources to do something like that. In the meantime, to help speed things along with cleaning, in January of 2020, we started the Secret Sherd Washing Brigade. <laughs> uh, this was a Facebook group for interested friends to book time and come over for an hour or two and help us wash dirty sherds. It's actually incredibly cathartic. Uh, yeah. I forget if we talked about this, but it's such a great way to pass time and just great to get people in who we don't get to see as often as we like mm -hmm. and have a nice, almost introverted social session. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But this was January of 2020. And uh, then, the next month, yeah. everything went to shit with the pandemic, that is. However... I will say this, the greatest unintended consequence of getting everything out of that privy by the beginning of 2020 was that when the lockdown hit and everybody was stuck in their homes, we had a whole privy's worth of artifacts to keep us occupied during that first pandemic lockdown. It was a privilege, frankly, because people were going out of their minds being stuck in their homes. And I never felt that way because it was like, oh, do we have nothing to do? No, I have stuff to do. I can just go bring a massive tub of dirty pottery up to you know the kitchen when I have debilitating anxiety about everything going on in my life and just clean shirts. Just an unending stream of menial labor. 
Yeah. Uh, that it has was, to be done. It has to be done. And it's actually really rewarding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. You know, as we talk about how excited we are by the stuff that we were finding, we got a ton more incredibly exciting stuff. As it turns out, just a little spoiler for what we're going to be talking about in our next episode. Everything that was below that clay cap that we talked about, the six-inch clay cap, ended up being pre-1760, which is incredible, right? Think about that, 1760. So we're a good 16 years before the Declaration of Independence happens, and it was from the decades preceding that. And everything above that clay cap was from 1760 to... 1907. And we were going to explain the precision of that date when we talk about some of the smaller artifacts that we found over the next year plus, although what is time? (laughs) Time doesn't mean anything. Over the next time period of sifting that brings us up to the present day. Which means we've reached the end of this episode. Oh my god, our first episode in two years. Here it is. (laughs) Stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to go over the amazing shit we found. Amazing. Amazing. It's fuck. It's so good. It's so fucking good. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bug House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bug House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear. <laughs>